0: All right, guys, setting the context here for the book or for this passage in particular, uh James has made his turn towards the conclusion back up there in chapter five, verse seven. Uh, we see that that's kind of he's starting to move towards his conclusion there uh, where he says, be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. He's he's kind of spent he's. Moved away from his rebuke of the kind of Christ people, rich Christians taking the name of Christ, but are being living terrible Christian lives kind of ways. And then he moves towards his conclusion in prayer. He says again, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Remember, he's writing to his dispersed former congregation. Uh, he's telling them to be patient. Then, as he did in the beginning of the letter, he goes on to acknowledge the normalcy of suffering in the Christian life. And the need to remain steadfast—you can see that in verse five, or sorry, chapter five, verse eleven. Uh, and so, uh, and then he's going to land the plane. He, last week we considered verse twelve. Sorry, he talks about the importance of our words again, about being honest. And then he moves to end his letter the same way that he began it, by addressing prayer. You guys remember four months ago when we started into this letter, you look back there in chapter 1, verse 5, right? There, he's talking about trials of various kinds, and James says that when you lack wisdom amidst those trials, you should ask God, and he will give you wisdom. He gives generously without reproach, and let him ask, let him pray in faith without doubting. In other words, believe God will not only hear you, but answer you. And so James started with prayer. He now ends his letter with prayer. And he does so, beloved, because he knows and believes that prayer is the way that we access God. And God is the one that keeps us steadfast. Or as we sing, uh, he keeps us fast to the end. James believed that prayer is power for perseverance. That's the big idea this morning. Prayer is power for perseverance. Two points this morning. Here's the first. Prayer is life. Prayer is life. Oh, guys, expositional preaching, the way that we do it here, right? Exposing the text. Expositional preaching is great, not only because it lets God's Word set the agenda and not my pastor's sort of, you know, desires and the like. It's good for that reason. But it also, expositional preaching is good because uh, it teaches you how to read your Bibles. And so, you'll notice... That hopefully when you heard the passage read, you would see where I'm getting the idea that the point of the passage is prayer. You'll notice it because if you look down there, if you're one of those that like to write in your Bible as I do, uh, you can circle the word pray or prayer in these six verses. And if you were to do that, you will circle uh, the word pray or prayer six times or actually seven times. I should say seven times in these six verses, the word pray or prayer. You can circle seven times. They're there. I would add an eighth reference to prayer there in verse 13 when it says to sing praise. How do we sing praise to God without pray? Right? Right. And then I would add a ninth reference to prayer in this passage in verse 17. You see that word reverently there? Guess what the word is in the Greek? Prayer. So in other words, uh, James is saying, Elijah prayed, prayed when he prayed. So prayed fervently. Nine references to prayer in six verses. Nine references. And this is part of his conclusion. Prayer is that important in the perseverance of the, of the faith. And so but what James is doing here again is not so much to give us specific instructions about how to pray more so than he is making a larger point that we should understand that prayer is life for the Christian. Prayer is life. That is prayer is something that should be happening in all aspects of our lives together. If we are going to remain steadfast to the end, we must see prayer as life. One pastor centuries ago said it like this. He says James means that there is no time in which God does not invite us to himself in prayer. As Paul instructs us, of course, in First Thessalonians 5, we are to pray without ceasing, right? This makes me think of uh, the brother that we support in the Middle East as he was sharing the gospel with a Muslim friend. I remember him telling us the story that this this Muslim was proudly telling him that the Muslims pray three times a day. And our brother in Christ responded back to him. He said, well, Christians are told to pray all the time. Uh, and the Muslim was shocked to hear that. And, of course, maybe some of you Christians are shocked to hear that is the call. But you can see that this is what James is talking about, this prayer as life. You can see that he's talking about by noting the circumstances that James is speaking into. Did you catch them? Take a look again. Look at verse 13. Are you suffering? Pray. Pray. Are you cheerful? Sing praise. In other words, pray. Both into the spectrum. Suffering or cheerful? Pray. Verse 14. Are you sick? Call for the elders to pray. Verse 16. Have you sinned? Well, confess and pray for one another. Notice he's covering all the basic aspects of life. On the good days and the bad days, pray. In physical sickness and spiritual sickness, pray. Prayer is life. Life. Again, prayer for us as Christians is to be like breathing. And so, beloved, are you breathing? Are you breathing? You stop breathing, you die. You don't pray, you won't be steadfast to the end. And you'll die forever. Praying is that important. Prayer is life. Now, if you've been to my office, you've seen uh, a portrait of my historical hero, William Wilberforce there. And beneath him is a quote Beneath that picture is a quote from Wilberforce. And on that quote, it says, Of all things, guard against neglecting God and the secret place of prayer. Of all things, guard against that. And when he says secret place of prayer, he's talking about our personal prayer lives. The prayers that are out of sight of public. Morning and evening prayers. Prayers over meals. Prayers for that meeting that you're going into. Personal prayers of thanksgiving and praise for the good gifts God has given you. Personal prayers for healing in your life, a family member or friend. Personal prayers where you ask the Lord to save your children, save your coworker, or someone you don't even know that lives back here in AU Park. Prayers for the spread of the gospel among the nations. Personal prayers of repentance. Personal prayers for growth. Personal prayers for searching, as David did when he asked, Lord, search me if there's any hidden sin within me. Or prayers where you're seeking discernment from God. Personal prayers of all different sorts. I've told you, some of you, the story that illuminates this so well, this praying is life and its importance in our life together by uh, telling that story from Samuel Chadwick, another great book on prayer, The Path of Prayer by Samuel Chadwick. and He tells the story of being just a little boy when he uh, is told to go by a neighbor's house and he goes in there unexpected and he opens the door quietly and he walks into this woman's home without her knowing it. And he walks in there quietly and Samuel Chadwick says he sees Mrs. Davenport sitting in the corner of a room, kneeling at a chair with an open Bible. And Chadwick looks at Mrs. Davenport and he then sees and he quietly walks back out of the room and she never saw him. And Chadwick says that 60 years later, I still think back to that moment, and I knew that Mrs. Davenport was a Christian because she prayed. Because she prayed. And particular, secret prayer there is being emphasized. But good days and bad days, suffering physically or spiritual, we should always be praying in our personal lives. And we're praying because God is our Father, right? He's our Father, right? God is always before us. Right? He's always before us. God as Father is always before us. He was uh, awake as we were asleep. He has spoken before us. And so uh, we pray because we are answering our Father speak. That's what praying is. And so prayer is answering in all of life, is answering the ways our Father is at work and speaking to us in our daily lives as His children. We answer Him. That's what prayer is. It's answering God. It's answering God as Father. We answer Him in prayer in order to commune with Him. To know Him, to enjoy Him, again, to discern His will, to sing His praises, to claim His promises, to confess our sorrows over our failures, to delight in His supremacy over our lives as His children. We're always praying because our Father is always speaking. We're responding back to Him. Chadwick again says that the basis of prayer is sonship. Because we're united to the Son, right? He says, when a child enter, he tells a story of when a child entered his father's study and walked up to him at his desk, the father turned and asked, what do you want, son? And the little chap answered, nothing, daddy. I just came to be with you. Prayer is life. Because prayer is answering God as father and we are his sons and daughters. And so every day we're responding back in our lives to our father as he speaks to us. J.I. Packer, I think, would agree with this notion of prayer as answering God as Father when he says, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity well at all. So from suffering to sinning to sensational sunny days, all of it is to return to God, our Father, in personal prayer. But, beloved, it's not only personal prayer that this passage teaches us. Notice the corporate aspects of prayer in this passage. John Unwichekwa says in his book on prayer, God is not just my Father, but our Father. We prayed that just a moment ago, didn't we? Our Father. He goes on to say... Uh, prayer was never meant to be merely a personal exercise with personal benefits, but a discipline that reminds us how we're personally responsible for others. Prayer, he says, is a collective exercise. See, friends, it's easy to read the Bible in an individualistic way, creating a lifestyle of privatized Christianity. Since that is our bent as humans and since it is the kind of culture that we live in, what is taught here in America... But friends, living an individualistic, privatized Christianity is a truncated way to see the Bible. It's a truncated way to see the gospel. Christianity is aiming at our individual lives, but it is also aiming at our lives together as a church. Which is why we're called to be a church, is to be a family. Kind of family. Even a body, as the Bible says, working together. We see that notion of the communal aspect of Prayer in so many aspects of the Bible. But again, we see it in this passage in three ways. First, and we'll linger here for a minute. First, we see communal or corporate prayer in the call for the person who is sick to call on the elders of the church. Now, note in this call for the elders that James assumes that Christians should, A, he just assumes that Christians should be involved in a local church. He just assumes that in this passage. He also assumes that, by the way, a plurality of elders are to be the leaders of the churches. He just assumes that a plurality of elders are leading churches. And then third, notice that uh, those elders are to be involved in the individual lives of the people. They're not, in other words, pastors are not just personality on stage, stages. And also the people are not just treating the church and its leaders like, you know, sort of jiffy lube. They kind of plug in and plug out whenever they need it. They're known to one another. They're like a family. That's why they call on those elders and the elders come. They know each other. They know the illnesses and they pray. And so, since we're here, just a three little explanations, three kind of excursus if we will, on this idea, on some of these things going on in verse fifteen. Number of things that probably, as you read that passage, some questions come to mind. Let me see if I can't answer some of that. So, uh, first off, it seems that the sick person here is grievously sick. That's what it seems like. They can't go to the elders, but they have to. They have to call the elders to come to them. <clears throat> And also the language of the elders as praying over the sick person. I don't, me, I don't see that to mean that it's sort of abstract, praying over them. It seems to be they're praying literally over them. Uh, they're Instead, this person is lying down in some way. They can't get up. Thus, the need to call for the elders to come to them and pray over them. <clears throat> so this would seem to indicate this kind of request should come in a situation like this, where there's grievous sickness. You call for the elders of the church, we come, we pray. But secondly, as to the oil, as opposed to what the Roman Catholic Church teaches, there's no power in the oil. There's no new sacrament like the Roman Catholic Church teaches where they sort of create a sacrament here. There's no power in the oil. You see that, by the way, in verse 15. The power is in the prayer of those whose trust is in the Lord to raise them up. The oil, friends, here is likened to the water and baptism or the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine and the bread and the juice or the hands, the feeling of the hands when you lay on of hands to pray. In other words, it's, the oil is meant to be a kind of physical or sensational element that helps the sick person know the spiritual blessing of that prayer. They are aids, aids, physical pointers to spiritual realities. Power is never in the elements themselves, but it is always in God himself. The elements are good gifts from God to remind us of the reality of spiritual blessings that will one day be consummated upon the return of Christ to physical reality. But then thirdly, as it relates to these elders playing over this sick person, as to what appears to be a promise of saving and raising as a result of the elders' prayers, because there are a number of possible ways to read this passage. I, I saw, I read five different opinions and different resources that I, uh, saw. I'm happy to speak more about those with you afterwards, but two that kind of come up that's worth passing along, uh, this could be a spiritual promise Pertaining to the physical resurrection that will fully save and fully rise since like Lazarus, even the healed people will eventually die. The Christian hope is in eternal salvation and eternal raising. That's one potential option of reading it. Or it could mean that the prayer of faith is dependent upon the Lord's will, not the will or uh, not the will or the prayers of the elders themselves. Meaning the Lord promises to save and raise insofar as it is in keeping with the will of God. Or thirdly, I'll give you a third option. It could be these uh, 1 Corinthians 14.1 where to pursue, eagerly pursue the spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12.9 says that what, there are gifts, not the gift of healing, but gifts of healing. And maybe those leaders of the church are pursuing those gifts and maybe they're able to come and pray over them and healing comes. There's three options. But lastly, on the point, as I've, I've been asked this before, will the elders of Restoration Church, will they do this? Well, of course we'll do this. Of course we'll do this. The Bible tells us to. So yes, indeed, we'll do this. God tells us to. But know that even in those instances, the power is in the Lord to say, it's not in me, it's not in the elders, not in the oil itself. It's in God to raise. But back to this notion of communal prayer, corporate aspects of prayer. We see prayers to be individual. We see prayers to be uh, communal as evidenced by the call to the elders to come and gather with this sick person and pray over them. But secondly, secondly, we see communal prayer in verse 16 where we see we are to confess our sins to one another that we may be healed. This might be relational healing that needs to happen. That could be uh, actual uh, spiritual relational Uh, Whatever whatever the case may be, one of these two is what the healing is. Maybe it's physical, but I think the context would seem to indicate, since it's talking about sins, probably more relating to spiritual healing. But friends, when you do, when you think about this confessing sins to one another, think about this. When you think about communal prayers and life together, right? Uh, When you do the Christian life together, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard. Living an individualistic Christian life is easier because you only have to tend to yourself and a couple others, right? That's why it's easier, by the way, for those of you that were single and transitioned into marriage, right? The reason why that was hard, because you only had to do you. But then you have to go and care for somebody else, right? It's much easier to just tend to yourself. And so when you do life in community, it's beautiful, but it's hard. We sin against each other. And so we need to come and confess those sins to God and to one another that healing would come to those relationships and especially to our relationship to the Lord. You and I have sins. We sin against each other and we confess those sins to one another. And then we pray and healing comes in those prayers. Uh, and guys, I'm thinking about this even as we take the Lord's Supper at the conclusion of this sermon. I'll never forget the time when someone came to me as I was standing in the line at another church. We were going to uh, our mother church. And she came up to me and just shared with me as I was standing in the line the ways in which she had sinned against me. And she asked for my forgiveness. And we just hugged. And she was crying. And I started to cry. We hear, And we went together. We walked up to the table. and We took the Lord's Supper together. That's what this meal does. It helps remind us of our unity in Christ and our need to be right with one another before the Lord. And as we think about this communal life together in prayer therein, note the words one another there. Confess your sin to one another. There's almost 60 of those in the New Testament. Almost 60 of them. The Bible assumes we're doing life both individually and corporately. It assumes then we are praying individually and corporately if we're going to remain steadfast. But thirdly, as we see the corporate aspects Uh, we see the corporate aspects of prayer in the context of Elijah's prayer in verse 17. So when Elijah prayed for the stopping of rain in 1 Kings 17.1, that's what it's talking about in that passage in James 5. It's referencing 1 Kings 17.1. When Elijah prayed for the stopping of rain, he wasn't praying that way just for himself. Right, He was praying for judgment to come to Ahab in his evil regime. And he did that in order that the glory of God would no longer be diminished in the land. And also then that the God's people would then increasingly live in the light of that glory. In other words, uh, Elijah's prayer was a personal prayer that reflected a personal desire that longed for a corporate reality, for a communal reality. And so, friends, we see prayer is life. In good days and bad days, physical and spiritual sickness, personal lives and corporate lives together, prayer is to encompass all of life if we are going to persevere in the faith. And that is true, beloved, because secondly, prayer is power. Prayer is power. Now, this is the heart of James' work here. He wants us to pray in all of life because he believes that prayer is the way that we access the unrelenting power of God. For the perseverance in the faith. Or if I can say that same thing negatively. Uh, to not pray is to not access the power of God. And to not access the power of God. Is not only to reveal your trust. Is ultimately in yourself. And your own industry. No matter what you say of your religion. But also to not access the power of God through prayer. Is to then place yourself outside the pra- the places of healing. And the places of forgiveness. Right. It's trusting yourself when you're not praying. It's ultimately functionally trusting yourself. No matter what you might say, you believe that's what you're doing when you don't pray. Don't make a habit of prayer. Thus making void any opportunity for accessing the power of God for eternal life. So take a look. We see this notion of uh, prayer as power in three instances. First, right there in verse 15, we see that it is the prayer of faith. That will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So there we see prayer is power for healing and forgiveness. Second, we see in verse 16 where it says explicitly, we get the heart of it here. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it, the prayer, is working. And then third, we see prayer as power by looking to James' example of Elijah again. His prayer led to no rain for three and a half years and then to start raining after three and a half years. And so prayer is life and prayer is life because prayer is where we access God's power in our lives. And in particular, we see in these passages that prayer is power for raising, for forgiveness and for healing physical and spiritual. And if you stop and think about it, what other power do you need from God? When you look at those things, if I have power for healing, for raising and forgiveness from God, what else do I need? Right? The promise of a healed and a raised body from the dead that is forgiven of sin has enough hope in it to help me in the worst of times and orient me in the best of times. And the way that we access that power that grants us these things is through prayer. But I want you to notice, guys, look, pay attention close to this passage. It's not just any kind of prayer for anyone to any God. That is not what's happening in this passage. We see here that it is a prayer of a righteous person in faith that is being offered in the name of the Lord. So There's important qualifications here. So let's first consider who we are praying to when we pray. This God that is. James says that we pray in the name of the Lord. By the way, if you've ever wondered that, why do Christians always say, maybe you Christians have wondered, why do we always say in Jesus' name, amen? Because uh, Jesus, the name of Christ, the name of God is like a passport that gets us into the throne room of God to experience his power, and to know him and enjoy him. So that's why we come in his name. I don't come in Nathan's name because I I ain't getting in, right? But in the name of Christ, I can come into his throne and I can be with him forever, right, in heaven. And so that's why we pray in the name of the Lord. Uh, and, uh, so let's think about this notion of the God of whom we pray to and let's do that guys by just thinking about the God that we pray to in the name of the Lord. Let's think about the God that we pray to in just the letter of James alone. Let's just do that from the beginning to end. Let's think about how James describes this God and, and notice as I walk through this, notice how powerful this God is that we pray to. It says at the very beginning, James says that every good and every perfect gift comes from him, from God. That he, God, is the father of lights. That God never changes. He's constant. We learn that of his own will, he brought us forth. We learn that God is righteous. That he is the God of glory. We learn that he is one. We learn that he gives grace to the humble. He is able to exalt us. That God is lawgiver and judge. He's the one that is able to save and to destroy. He is the Lord of hosts. We learn that he is compassionate and merciful. And that's just James. There's 65 other books of the Bible in which we can study and know this God of him we pray to. We can pray and be healed, pray and be forgiven. And apparently, even as example by the example of, of Elijah, we can pray and change the weather in some ways. And prayer then, friends, is power, not because of the words we say, but because of the God that we pray to this God the one that James is talking about. Prayer is a passport to this God, which is why in in our life together we often say prayer is privilege. It gives us access to this glorious God as Father. And also note another aspect of the qualification in verse 16. Note this. Think about this verse a little bit more carefully. We're going to think about the righteous person. So we've just discussed the God of whom we pray to in the name of the Lord. We discussed Him in the name of the Lord now with the other qualification was the righteous person in faith. Well, who's this righteous person? Look at it again. Verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And so, as we think about this this morning, is anyone here willing to say that you have achieved your own righteousness by your own good works? You have done so good. You've done so many good works that you are now righteous because of your achieving and being very, very religious. I don't think anybody in this room would be willing to say that. Secondly, is anyone in this room willing to say that you are like Jesus, fully God and fully man in some ways? Right? You have a righteousness that is your nature in the sense that you've always had it. I don't think anybody would also be willing to say that in this room. And so we recognize when we go through that little exercise, we recognize that God alone is righteous. God alone is righteous. Therefore, whoever God has brought forth, and since he's the one that is righteous, whoever it is that he has brought forth, as James says, anyone that has been that is saved, been forgiven of their sin, has been given the righteousness of God. In other words, this is the righteous person James is talking about that can pray and experience the power of God. It's the Christian, any Christian. Maybe some of you Christians thought, well, you know, maybe Nathan and, you know, and, and Joey and Chris and Chris and those guys, even maybe, maybe they and Ray, maybe they have more special power. I have stood in places out in the world where they said they knew I was a pastor. Like, well, Nathan, your prayers probably get heard. Listen, no, I'm not any different than any other Christian. I'm righteous. My righteousness is no better or worse than any other Christian's. It's been declared to us. So Christians, all Christians that are in Christ have Christ's righteousness, and therefore they are the righteous person and their prayers will be heard with great power. Isn't that that encouraging to consider? And so, friend, if you're not a Christian, this is a critical thing for you to understand, this piece of the puzzle. It's often said that Christians think that we're all perfect and everybody else just sinners. And I am sure that there are Christians that have acted that way and think that way, but they are dead wrong. Uh, the reality is, friends, the world thinks in the opposite way, literally the opposite way. So if we were to go out on the streets now, we were going to walk down, let's say, to DuPont Circle or to Tenley Circle, and we were to poll 100 people that were not Christians and ask them, are you basically good or basically bad? More than likely, most, the strong majority of them are going to say, no, 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 I'm basically good. Uh, and humanity is basically good and only a little bit bad. And so it's that kind of thinking, friends, uh, it's that kind of thinking that the religions of the world use to construct their entire theology of salvation. Since we are basically good, the thinking goes, if you think that humanity is basically good, we need to, all we need to do is we just need a little bit of religion to kind of put some energy into it. And then we can become righteous because of what we did in our efforts to be more religious, meaning we achieve our own righteousness, there's a way in which we can, in our own w- ways, achieve our own righteousness, but that is not the op- that is not the the uh, the story of the gospel. That is not the teaching of the gospel. That is not Christianity. Christianity is exactly the opposite. That's the religion. Uh, that's the message of most other religions. But the gospel says something differently. See, when James says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power, he doesn't mean that we have a righteousness that we have achieved on our own by our own good works. It's not what Christianity believes. He has already told us, James has already told us back in chapter 1, verse 17, that every good and every perfect gift comes down from God, the Father of lights, not from us. He already told us in in the very next verse, in chapter 1, verse 18, right? That he, God, brought us forth by his will, not by our will. In other words, righteous persons only become righteous by grace through faith and the only righteous person to have walked the earth. Jesus the Christ. Righteous persons are righteous because of the unmerited favor of God. The Christian recognizes that. Not because we are basically good, but entirely the opposite. Just go and study Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 this afternoon. You'll see that. Note in the first three verses, it says there in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are children of wrath. We are following the prince of the power of the air. That's the nature that the Bible sees Of the non-Christian. Romans 3 makes this so so explicit. It says there are none who seek God. No, not one. There are none who are righteous. Which is reflecting, by the way, Psalm 114. To the basic Christian position. Understands that the basic nature of humanity. Is that we are by basically bad. Not as bad as we could be. But basically bad. Right? Uh, Think about it this way. Uh, those of us that have children know this, but even those of you that don't. Did you ever have to have someone teach you how to lie, cheat, steal, or think of yourself before others? Did anybody ever have to teach you that? I've had, I have two children, and I saw this, they did it very instinctively. I didn't ever have to, uh, teach it to them. That old phrase that many of you know, to be human is to err, right? And so the righteous we need is going to have to be an alien righteousness, one outside of us. The righteousness we need to have great power in prayer comes not from ourselves and our own achievements, but only by the grace of God through faith in Jesus the righteous. The Christian's righteousness is Jesus' righteousness that has been imputed or declared upon them in faith. You can think of it almost like Jesus' righteousness is like a robe that the Christian puts on. It's his righteousness that we wear. Romans 5 teaches this uh, in Romans 5, 19, where it says, For as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many, humans, "uh, were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many, that is those trusting in Christ, will be made righteous. Or as it says in 1 Peter 3, 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous, Jesus is the righteous, for the unrighteous. That's us. Why? That he might bring us to God. Right? Now we have his righteousness. We can go into the throne room and pray and be heard. Friends, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where Jesus Christ, the righteous, fully God and fully man, lives a righteous, holy life. Never sinning like all of us have. And still do. And so therefore, his sacrifice on the cross is able to make payment for all those that trust him. I don't trust myself to make payment for my sins. I trust in Jesus on the cross to make that sacrifice. And then this amazing thing happens. By grace through faith, I trust in Jesus. That payment on the cross, his right, he takes my sin and his righteousness gets counted to me. And so I'm counted righteous by grace through faith in him. And so friends, where other religions are man-centered and works-based, the gospel is God-centered and grace-based. Our righteousness is Jesus' righteousness that has been declared upon us by grace through faith in His sin-bearing work on the cross. Therefore, whoever is repenting of their sin and trusting in Christ alone for salvation, you are the righteous person of verse 16. It's you. No matter who you are, where you're from, and what you've done, you have to understand that you are righteous, counted righteous in Christ, and therefore you can have great power in your prayer. You have to be someone that knows that you're weak. You have to be someone that knows that you're needy. You have to be someone that knows that you're sinful. And so you hope in Christ, which allows you to have that passport, that privilege into the throne room of God as a son or daughter to go into the father's throne room and be heard. And that prayer will not only give you power, James says, it will give you great power. I want you to notice this, by the way, if you're if you want to see this even further, look at the very next verse that James writes in verse 17. Notice what he emphasizes. It's really easy to miss. He says, Elijah, this is his example. Elijah was a man who with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. In other words, he's wanting you to understand Elijah was just like me and you. He didn't have any different stuff in him, as it were. And yet he trusted in the righteousness of God. His prayer was then heard, and then it stopped raining. And then it started raining because of his prayers. But James is going out of his way to help you see that we are no different than Elijah, and Elijah's no different than us sinner that's trusting in God's righteousness to be heard. And because of that, we can pray and experience that power. And as we do, as we weak people that are trusting in the power and the righteousness of Christ, as we pray, we think about that power that we're able to experience. We think about this as we think through just the story of the Bible. J.C. Ryle rehearses this. He says, prayer achieves things that would otherwise be impossible and out of reach. In the Bible, we read that prayer opened the Red Sea. Prayer brought water from the rock and bread from heaven. Prayer made the sun stand still. Prayer brought fire from the sky onto Elijah's sacrifice at Carmel. Prayer overthrew armies. Prayer has healed the sick. Prayer has raised the dead. He goes on to say, in church history, we read about Mary, Queen of Scots, Bloody Mary, Mary, Queen of Scots, who apparently said, I fear John Knox's prayers more than an army of 10,000 men. Therefore, beloved, why would we not pray? And why would we not pray in all of life? Make a habit of prayer like breathing. So that's where I want to conclude. Let's put this into application. Friends, we are living in a strange and difficult and disorienting day, aren't we? And on top of that strange and disorienting day in which we live, our own personal lives seem to be getting more and more complicated themselves. More distracting, more disorienting. Some of you have heard, the members of our church have certainly heard heard that in 2019, our church's members had a total of 32 kids. We now have 74. You want to talk about distracting and disorienting, right? Some of you are having children, your first child, that's disorienting. Some of you are having your second child, that's disorienting. And then there are still others, praise the Lord, that have even more than that. Very disorienting, very distracting, right? Or some of you... um, Have gotten married. whole new set of disorienting and distracting things. Uh, Still others of you want to be married or not. Some of you want to have children and you don't. Some of you uh, want to have more meaningful friendships and you don't have them. Some of you have jobs that are pushing you to the limit. Your margin for life, many of you, and the margin for faithful thinking and living is about this thin. Some of you are getting ready to move again. Some of you are doing great. Having new and exciting opportunities. Things are looking up. Some of you are thriving in the Lord. And again, meanwhile, we think about the environment we're living inside of. Uh, a world in which we live and that's more increasingly hostile to the historic Christian faith. A world that's more confusing, more dangerous, more strange, more expensive. Anybody been to the gas station recently? And so I ask you, amidst all of this, are you suffering? Are you cheerful? Are you sick? Have you grumbled against others? Sinned against them? Are you stuck? Do you want to see some breakthroughs? Do you want to see life around you? Do you want to, like Job, remain steadfast? Do you want to see rain stop like Elijah? Or do you just want to see God in what has become a kind of humdrum routine of life? Well, then the answer, friend, is you have to pray. You have to pray. Because prayer is all of life. On the good days and the bad days. When you're healthy or when you're sick. When you've sinned or when you've been sinned against. Pray. Because prayer, again, is the call to life. Prayer is critical because prayer accesses the God of power. The God that declares you his son, his daughter, his child. To neglect prayer, personal and corporate friend, is to neglect the power for life. It's that simple. And if you don't know what to pray, you say, Nathan, all right, I see the need, I'm convicted by that, but I don't know, I don't know what to pray. Let me give you two verses to encourage you. God makes a promise to you, Christian, his son or daughter. Romans eight twenty six. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray as we ought. Amen? But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit prays for you. But secondly, look at this. Hebrews 7.25. Speaking of Jesus as the forever high priest, He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, through Jesus, since He, Jesus, Always lives. Why? We said prayer is life. He always lives. Jesus lives right now in His resurrected body in the heavenly places. And what is He always living to do? It says, Hebrews 721, to make intercession, to pray for them. That is those that draw near to Him in faith. Right? We, we, we just sang before the sermon, He will hold us fast. And God is holding us fast by His prayers for us, even when we don't know what to pray. Praise the Lord. And so, beloved, as he prays for us, we must pray if we're going to live. If we are going to remain steadfast, we are going to have to learn to do the same as the God of the universe does. We are going to have to not only pray, but as Elijah did, we're going to have to pray, pray. We're going to have to fervently pray in the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. That's what prayer is. In the Spirit, through the Son, To the Father. We're going to have to learn to pray. We're going to have to learn to pray for the nations. We're going to have to learn to pray for our nation. We're going to have to learn to pray for our city. For our lives. For our relationships. For our neighbors. For our church. And for other churches in this city. And around the globe. And for more churches to be started. Giving praise amidst those prayers for the multitude of heavenly blessings. That are so abundant around us. And petitioning for more. So that God would be glorified in our midst. Praying in the good days and the bad days, in the routine and boring days to the exciting days, we must pray because prayer is a privilege granted to us in the gospel. Therefore, beloved, we must pray for power to persevere. Corey ten Boom said this before. She says, look without, look out and find distress. Look within and be depressed. Look to Jesus and find rest. Look to Jesus. And look to Jesus who is praying for you, beloved. And if you're not a Christian, surrender to Him. And come to Him and know that He prays for you. He's waiting for us. He's waiting for us. And so let's pray to Him now. Forgive us for our prayerlessness. I know I confess that to you at times. Lord, forgive me, forgive us, and make us a people, individually and corporate, that are prayerful. Help us to see prayer like breathing. Help us to see prayer as life, and help us to see prayer as power, because it accesses you, God, our Father. Thank you, God, for the privilege of prayer. How we're able to go to you because of the sufficient work of Christ. The veil is torn. We can go in anytime we want and meet with you to listen to you. You're always speaking. So may we respond to you in prayer, our Father, because of the work of the Son and the power of the Spirit. And may you make us a people that pray. Thank you for the privilege of prayer, God. May we Lean into it in our life together, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.